Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Peter Krause. He's uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College and a research affiliate at MIT Security Studies Program. Uh, Peter has a brand new book. Uh, it's called Rebel Power, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win, which was just released by Cornell University Press. Uh, Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So, Peter, let's talk about uh, about your book. Um, now, I was fortunate enough to read an early version of this at a POMEPS uh, a Junior Scholars Book Workshop, and uh, I'm really delighted that we that you now have a final book product. So, tell us what what do you think is the major contribution, the major argument of this book? Sure. So the book itself answers two central questions to people who study national movements and nationalism or political violence. The first is, why do some nations get states and others don't? So we look at the Middle East, we see national movements like the Zionist or the Algerian national movement who have today independent states. But we see others like the Palestinians or the Kurds who don't have a state. And so one of the key contributions is to explain why that is. And the argument, in short, is that it's all about the balance of power inside these movements. If you have a hegemonic movement with one dominant group versus a fragmented movement with multiple groups, then you're going to be more effective because that hegemonic movement is going to have clear messaging, a cohesive strategy, and ultimately be more effective in their struggle. The second question the book asks and answers is why certain groups within these movements opt for violence or nonviolence and opt for cooperating or competing with other groups in their movement. So things today in terms of Fatah and Hamas who are making the news in. Now again, within the Palestinian national movement, they both want the state of Palestine, but they differ on who they want to actually lead that state of Palestine. In this case, both of them want themselves to actually lead the state. And so the book also answers the question about when they're going to use violence or nonviolence to achieve their collective goal, as well as when they're going to fight and compete with one another versus cooperating with one another. And yet again, the argument is it's about the balance of power in the movement. In this case, it's what I would say is where you stand depends on where you sit. This is an argument from uh, Rufus Miles about American politics. I apply it to nationalism to say where you stand within the hierarchy of your national movement. Are you a strong group? Are you a weak group? That determines where you're ultimately going to uh, sit or where you're going to push in terms of using violence or cooperate. Now, it's, it's a really clever argument in some ways because it reverses or kind of turns around um, you know, some of the what might seem to be the conventional wisdom that success, for example, might seem to be driven by if you have a larger group or if you have more groups fighting on your side, you're more likely to win. And um, so this is pointing in a very different direction. Well, in many ways, you're exactly right, Mark. I mean, certainly we think, you know, the more the merrier. And if you're having a broader national struggle, certainly they're not handing out states on street corners. These are hard things to achieve. You would want more groups on your side. But you're absolutely right to say that, you know, having more groups, and particularly in the case of my argument, more significant groups, uh, isn't actually a good thing. Think about it in terms of the American political system. You would say we actually have many parties, but in fact, you would say, how big is the party system? You would say we have a two-party system, two significant parties. I make a similar argument with these national movements, is that if you have kind of a one-party system or a hegemonic movement, you're more likely to be affected, because what happens is then that dominant group spends less time worrying about being supplanted or having to deal with internal competitions and spending blood and treasure on internal fights. And instead, can say, you know what, the best thing that can make me more powerful is to get a state right now, because I'm in line to inherit the throne. 
whereby if you have multiple groups who are competing and could plausibly gain the throne of that new state, they're going to spend more time squabbling and positioning each other to actually be in position to win as opposed to actually pursuing and fighting against the regime or the foreign power that they're trying to struggle against. So you're right that that goes against some of the conventional wisdom about fragmentation. I'll add one final point, which is there is a great amount of scholarship uh, by people like Wendy Perlman or Kathleen Cunningham or other who have examined this issue before and have written excellent works on it. The difference I have with them somewhat is that they'll often look at unity, which is the idea that there are multiple groups, but as long as they're working together in some way, that that's going to be more effective. My argument is slightly different. I think even if you have multiple significant groups and they say they're going to work together, that still is generally going to be not effective because of commitment problems because of the fact that these groups form a hundred different alliance structures for the one that actually works out. So I actually think at the end of the day, it is about power. It is about having a dominant group, not multiple groups who say they're going to work together. And you have this clever argument then that once, a, once one of these groups knows that it's unlikely to inherit the throne, that then it has every incentive to become a spoiler because what's the point of winning if you're not going to be the one sitting on the, end of, sitting on the, on the throne? Um, I wonder, you know, does that gut cut against perhaps the idea that groups might actually have like deep commitments to to a valued outcome like national independence? Um, why can't they set aside uh, questions about the future power distribution if they see the possibility of actually getting this thing that they want so badly? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it goes directly to the whole concept of contentious collective action. The idea that these groups simultaneously have what I call organizational goals, which is they want to have power, they want to have notoriety, they want to survive, they want to increase their membership. At the same time, they have these kind of strategic goals of statehood or independence. And I think it's fair to say they have both. From my interviews that I've done, from the archival work I've done, it's clear to me that groups and the individuals within them care about both of these objectives. My argument is simply that most of the time, you never go broke betting on the fact that groups care more about their organizational goals. They always want to make sure that they're maximizing their power. So the argument is simply, when maximizing their power means that they should pursue and achieve strategic goals, that's when it happens. That's the idea that if you're the hegemon, the best way to become stronger is actually to win, to achieve victory, to achieve a new state, because now you get the office, the wealth, the status that comes along with it. However, if you are a weaker organization and you're not in line to inherit the throne, then you actually have an incentive, as you say, to spoil a deal or not necessarily to prevent independence forever, but hold it off for now until you can position yourself to actually rise to the top. And in fact, there's a couple great examples of this. Um, in terms of the Zionist movement, you had the Lehi and the Irgun, two of the weaker Zionist militant groups, talking to one another as the British were thinking of leaving the Palestine Mandate, saying, maybe we should hold off on them actually trying to evacuate because we're not yet ready to inherit the state. Instead, our rivals, the Labor Party and the Haganah are. Similarly, with the Palestinians in Jordan in 1960s and 1970, you had the DFLP and others saying, maybe we should hold off on trying to overthrow King Hussein until we are actually ready to inherit the throne. So you see this type of thinking from these organizations. Well, let's talk about some of the other examples then. Because, for example, when you talk about the Algerian case, I think it's very important that you have the FLN uh, emerging as, as, as a hegemonic movement. But it didn't start out that way. So how does it become hegemonic amidst all of these different movements who all basically want independence or, or have these shared goals? Why does, in a case like Algeria, one of them end up as hegemonic? 
It's a great question, and it's one of the most fascinating ones, especially when you say compare the Palestinians to the Algerians, as I do in my book, because both Fatah and uh, the FLN actually started as what I would call subordinate or challenger groups, in the sense that when they emerged initially, they weren't the strongest group in their movement. However, over time, the FLN became the hegemon, and for a brief period, Fatah did as well. But they did it through very different paths. In the case of the FLN, they actually physically eliminated many of their rivals or threatened them to force them to merge into their group. So when they're looking at the MNA, kind of their major rival, um, at various points the MNA was offering some type of unity, some type of cooperation. But to the FLN's view, that was not going to work because A, they wanted to dominate and lead the new state, but also there had been previous attempts at unity among Algerian groups in the 40s and the 50s that was not effective in getting independence from the French. So what the FLN did is they had very, very brutal tactics where they physically fought and killed many members of the MNA, as well as dropping dimes on some of the communist groups and others to basically encourage them to merge, not as organizations, but as individuals into the FLN. And that's why I argue that in the early periods of the revolution against the French in 54, 55, 56, things weren't actually going that well. The French had the military initiative. It didn't seem like the movement was going to be successful. It was pretty dark days. But by 57, 58, when the FLN eliminates its rivals, becomes the dominant hegemon, that's when things start to turn, and now all of a sudden you get to the point that Algeria gets independence in 62. What's fascinating is that when you look at movements like the Palestinians, you don't necessarily see these same dynamics. Certainly there were squabbles, there was infighting from time to time between Fatah and the PFLP, or later on Fatah and Hamas. However, most of the time these groups aren't killing each other directly. Instead what they're doing is outbidding. They're using violence or other means to actually compete against one another for recruits, for membership, for support, in part because of that, though, Fatah is rarely able to become the hegemon. They're the leader of the Palestinian national movement for many decades, but there are still significant challengers like the PFLP, like Saika, like Hamas, and ultimately that hurts their broader cause. What about the role of international actors in all of this? Uh, you know, so if you have, for example, in the Palestinian case, where Fatah is able to draw on support from the Gulf, whereas the PFLP maybe gets support from Moscow. Um, as whereas in maybe in other cases, there's a more unified uh, uh, stream of external support uh, running through one organization. How important is that as opposed to the conditions on the ground? Yep. So I think it's very important, uh, but I actually have an argument on this that I think, again, just turns the conventional wisdom a bit on its head. I think if you look at studies of national movements and insurgencies, it's pretty close to con census that foreign support matters. I mean, most of these movements and the groups within them are quite weak militarily, economically, etc., vis-a-vis the regimes that they're fighting. So getting external support can help them a great deal. What I argue, however, is what nature of that uh, support takes and how effective it is depends a great deal on the internal balance of power inside the movement. So what I mean is, if you have a fragmented movement, you basically have a buyer's market for foreign influence. What I mean by that is, let's say you're the Saudis, or you're the Qataris, or you're the Turks, or whoever or else, and you want to potentially get some cachet or get some influence in the Palestinian national movement. If there is a fragmented movement, you can go to Hamas and say, hey, I want to give you this funding, but here are the strings attached to it. You need to do X, Y, Z. And if Hamas says no, then they say, oh, okay, well, I'll go to Fatah, or I'll go to Saika previously, or I'll go to Islamic Jihad, and I'll potentially get them to do what I want. And so that gives the foreign powers much more influence on what's going on, and guess what? Even though they often support the broader Palestinian cause, they care much more about their own political objectives. So it often actually hurts the cause to have that type of foreign support. However, if you have a hegemonic movement with only one group where you can really buy in to get influence, now it's actually a seller's market for influence in the sense that Fatah, who's the hegemon, can say, okay, 
you want to fund someone within the Palestinian National Movement, I'm the one-stop shop for influence. You can only fund me, and now I get to set the terms of that deal. So ultimately, I think foreign support can help, but it helps much more if you have a hegemonic movement. If you have a fragmented movement, it can actually be harmful. It's one of the reasons the Palestinian have had problems. They've had a great deal of support from a variety of Arab powers and Middle Eastern powers, but it sometimes hurt their movements because that foreign support has worked across purposes. So, so if you apply this argument to, say, to Syria, um, it seems like the implication would be that uh, the Syrian opposition would have been much more likely to have, to have won if they had turned their guns inward and one group had managed to kill off all the other groups and unite themselves against Assad rather than trying to coordinate dozens of different groups all fighting alongside each other. Is that what the argument is really suggesting? It's one of the things that it does suggest that ultimately if you wanted to overthrow the Assad regime, the Syrian insurgency should become a hegemony. Now, how does that happen? It could be physical elimination. It could be mergers, not unity where they say, okay, we're all going to work together, but we still maintain our autonomy. It would have to be a merger. The challenge with that, as maybe you're alluding to, is you have not just the United States, you have the Turks, you have the Qataris, the Saudis, many others, who are propping up in, in many ways their own various militant groups. And so the idea that one would try to eliminate the other could be a real problem when you're talking about borderline proxy war. So in some ways, the Syrian conflict, uh, and at least the struggle against Assad, was doomed from the start, at least in terms of its internal balance of power. But yes, in terms of the counterfactual, had it been one dominant group, would it have been more likely to succeed? My argument suggests the answer is yes. Now, one of the things which which is striking about the book is that there seems to be an assumption that all of the groups are fighting for the same thing, right? They're all basically fighting to be on the throne of an independent state. In the Palestinian case, uh, some might argue that actually uh, the PLO and Fatah had different uh, goals. They, they were actually trying to do different things, especially after 93. Um, wh what do you think about that as a way of explaining these differences? It's not just that they wanted, uh, they each wanted to be on the same throne, but rather they fundamentally had different values or different ideological objectives. Um, I think I agree with parts of that statement. I mean, you can look at Nadav Shelef or other people's, like Ian Lustig's excellent work on how different national groups have different visions for what the state will look like in terms of its territorial borders, in terms of what the structure of the government will be. I absolutely grant that and think that's true. However, I don't think it's necessarily a problem for my argument. I think I somewhat incorporate it in the following way. I would argue that whether it's Hamas and Fatah, or whether it's the FLN and the MNA, or whether it's the labor Zionists, the revisionist Zionists, they might have slightly different visions for what the borders of the state would look like or the nature of the regime would look like. But as long as they're pushing in the same general direction of trying to get rid of some foreign power or topple some current regime and establish some broader independent state, I think that it's fair to say that they have this kind of collective goal they're generally working towards, but then they have these more specific organizational goals that they differ on. In terms of them being different as well, I would also argue that has a lot to do with their position in the hierarchy. Let's look at what's just been in the news the past week. Hamas saying, although somewhat debated, that they're potentially going to change what they will accept vis-a-vis -vis a Palestinian state, where they're saying, okay, we're still not going to recognize Israel, but potentially we're open to accepting some type of state or autonomous region within the 67 borders. If we think that there's precedent for this, the great example is Fatah. When Fatah started out, they said, we're not going to negotiate with Israel, we're not going to recognize Israel, we're not going to accept less than the full state of Palestine, and they in fact killed and targeted Palestinians who did so. And then yet in 74, they started to say, okay, we'll accept something in part of the territory as a stage towards the full thing. And then as you allude to in 93, they now say, okay, we'll recognize 
recognize Israel, we'll accept a state in less than all of this, and that will be our final objective. So it's open question, whereas Hamas is making these same steps, or at least making some of them. And why is that happening? I think my argument offers a great suggestion, which is Hamas has now been the hegemon in Gaza for quite a while. They won the last free and fair Palestinian elections in 2006. And so now that they're in this position of power to apparently inherit more of the state of Palestine or some autonomous region than they were before, now they're more amenable to less than the whole pie. How far would you take that argument? Would you say that basically ISIS and the Free Syrian Army are essentially functionally equivalent, despite their very different ideologies, um, because they're both fighting on the same territory? Or do you think that, um, the, that the ideological differences are great enough in a case like that where you would not expect that kind of isomorphism? Yeah, so I think that you're right that ISIS is the most extreme example that maybe in some ways its extreme ideology could overwhelm um, the argument that I'm making. So oh, the argument I'm making, to be clear, applies to national movements. And so in some sense, I'm starting with the basis that they all have this broader national goal. Now, you well, that makes have sense, a yeah. national group that's also communist, and in fact, pretty much all the movements I study do. There's the Jordanian Communist Party with the Palestinians. There's communist groups within the Zionist movement. There's communist groups within the Algerians. But as long as they have that core ideology of trying to push for a national state, um, then they have at least that baseline similarity. So that's why I think that at the end of the day, I find that power distribution often over overwhelms ideology for the groups that I study. When you look at a group like ISIS, I would not argue in any way that they're a classic national organization. In fact, they in many ways reject the modern nation state. They call themselves the Islamic State and they want statehood, but it doesn't exactly fit the model we're talking about before. And it's also fair to say that they're part of a broader insurgency in Syria along with the FSA and other groups, but they're not part of the same nationalist insurgency. They're not just trying to supplant Assad, establish a government in Syria, and that's it. So for that reason, I still would say you are going to see right now ISIS losing territory, ISIS becoming weaker. That change in their relative power is going to impact their tactics in terms of whether they escalate more terrorism or do other types of things. So I still think the argument applies somewhat to ISIS, but you're correct to say because they're not pursuing statehood in the same fashion along with these same groups in the, in the exact same type of movement, that the argument doesn't hold as well for ISIS as it does for other national movements like the Kurds. Let me ask you uh, one last question, um, a very a different kind of question. Um, one of the things which was interesting as you talked about your methodology and how you went about researching the book is that uh, you found it very actually difficult to simply put together and decode the distribution of power within these national movements. Uh, you know, a lot of the other stuff at this point in the stage of insurgency research, you can kind of take off the shelf in terms of violence and power and that sort of thing. But you kind yep. of had to build this on your own and figure out exactly how these groups had evolved and everything. So did you find things that were surprising as you did that? Uh, did you find things that maybe unsettled things that you had expected to find about um, one of the groups that you were studying uh, that made you rethink uh, some of the conventional wisdom on that particular case? 100%. So you're exactly right to say that much of the legwork that I did when I was living in various countries in the Middle East, when I was working in about eight or nine different national archives, so I worked both in kind of national state archives like the British archives, the Algerian national archives, as well as kind of archives of individual groups. So if you go with the Zionist movement, they have are good archives, they have Haganah archives, uh, same with the Palestinians, it's super Palestine studies. So a lot of the work I did in archives and then interviewing former members of these national movements was trying to pin down exactly what you're saying. And my key variable is about the power of these groups. How do I measure it? I look at 
membership size, I look at funding, I look at popular support. Um, in many of these movements, there weren't regular public opinion polls done on popular support. These groups don't produce annual reports on how many members they have or how much funding they have most of the time. So a lot of my legwork was finding that stuff and ultimately being fascinated by it and being surprised. Let me explain how. So when I picked the cases that I looked at, this isn't a large-end study for the most part. It's looking at these four national movements and comparing them. I picked them in terms of variance on strategic success. So I looked and said, okay, the Algerian national movement, that was strategically successful. There's the state of Algeria. The Zionists got the state of Israel. The Irish, my one non-Middle Eastern case, got the state of Ireland, but not Northern Ireland, so kind of a mixed case. And then the Palestinians don't have a state of Palestine. So that's how I picked the cases. But I had really no idea about all the various groups that are inside of these movements, how strong they were, and how to what extent that varied over time. So here are some of the things that I found that were different than conventional wisdoms. The first is, much of the scholarship that's out there just counts groups in terms of discussing fragmentation versus unity. They basically say, if there's one group, it's very unified. If there's eight groups, it's very fragmented. Um, so I found a couple things. Number one, I first found many more groups than existing data sets and books actually had. So, for example, some of the data sets that are out there say, you know, there were 10 Zionist groups or six Zionist groups. You know, I find 24 different groups at various points. So one of the things is just going into detail and really doing in-depth, deep analysis involving interviews and archives opens your eyes to maybe more actors than you thought were there before. So that's number one. Number two, what I found is, despite there being more groups, adding the elements of power in a really fine-grained manner allows you to see who really matters. So even though at much of the time there were 15, 18, 20 different Palestinian factions, you could clearly identify with my numbers in various years, okay, at this time there were really three significant actors, okay, at this time there were really two, this time there were five, this time there were one. And what was fascinating was to see how those numbers really did match up again and again. Again, not perfectly, there's no laws in social science, my argument isn't close to a law. In the conclusion chapter I talk about exceptions, mistakes, ex but again and again, I found that those minute shifts, when a group would go from being a subordinate group that didn't really matter to all of a sudden becoming a challenger to becoming the leader, again and again, their tactics, the way they behave, shifted very, very quickly in terms of whether they would talk in terms of, okay, we need to use violence. Now we need to not negotiate with the regime to all of a sudden, you know what, let's maintain the status quo, let's think about finding some type of negotiated deal. That to me was the most surprising thing, but it was also in many ways the most powerful finding that I had. And so that's why in the book I do these longitudinal studies to follow not just the movements overall succeeding or failing, but by year. Within each movement, every movement, even the Zionists and Algerians, have multiple years of failures. Even the Palestinians who don't have a state of Palestine and have years of greater success. And almost every single group goes through periods of using violence or not, of negotiating or spoiling. And so that in many ways is the most fascinating thing because normally when we talk about these movements, we talk about them as unitary successes or failures. We talk about this group or that group as being moderate or extreme. What I find is those things change all the time depending on the balance of power and groups' positions within it. All right. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Peter Krauss of uh, Boston College. He's the author of the new book, Rebel Power, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win. And that's uh, just been published by Cornell University Press. Peter, thanks for joining us and having this conversation. Thanks so much. It was a great pleasure talking with you, Mark.